Hi. Welcome to the Ledex show, a podcast that will help you simplify the business ecosystem. Co-hosted by the co-founders of Ledex, Ayush and Vishesh. So sit back, relax and enjoy the podcast. Hey guys, welcome to the Ledex show. Today we have Ms. Tyali Das Gupta with us. She is the senior vice president of the marketing at Columbia Pacific Communities. So hi Tyali, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi Vanita. Um well my name is Piali and I head uh, marketing at uh, Columbia Pacific Communities. I've spent uh, you know 14 plus years in marketing and communications. Started my career with the Times of India uh, as a journalist. Uh, so started with you know um, you know one part of communication really and then moved on to the brand side worked with Myntra, Amazon um, uh the last stint was with uh, the publicist group as the creative director and uh, you know post that of course i've been at uh, columbia pacific at columbia pacific i look at after marketing communication and pr uh and uh with the country's largest senior living community operators we are we're here to sort of reimagine the space of senior living in the country and uh, yeah i'm 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 quite happy to be here at the legex show today yeah so would you like tell a little bit more about what you exactly do right now at the columbia pacific community um as i said i head marketing and what that means is that uh, you know everything to do with the brand the brand communication everything to do with uh, you know pr uh, you know essentially brand management uh, demand generation for the business uh, uh you know all of it uh, content marketing uh, right or all of it is something that uh, my team and i we drive uh, for the organization uh, the idea is to actually build a world class brand uh, over the next 5 uh, years uh, which aims to you know reimagine the category of senior living in the country and aims to be uh, the region's most preferred senior living community yeah, that's wonderful so like Kali what would you like consider as a highlight in your journey or what is the differentiating factor you would consider in your journey that is different from all the other people around you well i think for me it has to be the fact that you know i uh, i started my career with journalism and and i think the skills that i uh, kind of developed uh, as a journalist i think are uh, almost life skills i would i would say which have stayed with me for for you know for so many years and i don't think those would ever kind of go away because those were um you know the skills that i got at a very very you know young impressionable age in my in my life and at a very early stage in my career um and and uh, i didn't really have you know if you look at my journey as 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 uh, as a marketer it was not really a very linear journey i mean i didn't really start working with a brand and kind of you know um Uh, go up the ladder uh, you know in in that sense uh, it was actually uh, you know from a journalism background which is which is essentially uh, a very very communication led uh, you know kind of uh, uh, profile to to then kind of moving on to the brand side um, and uh, because i i did my masters in communication 
uh, I actually uh, got exposed to all the facets of communication. So whether it was brand communication, whether it was PR, whether it was advertising, whether it was corporate communication, whether it was new media, and whether it was journalism, uh, you know, it, it, we sort of got exposed to all of that. And then I chose to kind of, you know, start my career with journalism and then later on move on to uh, you know, uh, more Marcom and marketing uh, sort of roles. Um, and I think that, you know, um, uh, because I have sort of, um, you know, seen, um, you know, different uh, industries uh, at, at very sort of pivotal points. So for example, I, I left the media industry when it was at the height of disruption, when the digital transformation was just kind of gripping the country. Um, I, I also entered e-commerce, uh, you know, and, and, and the business of e-commerce at a time when it was a very, very nascent, uh, uh, it was at a very nascent stage in, in our country, first with Mintra and then with Amazon. Um, and, uh, and now I've, I've sort of, uh, you know, uh, I've been working in a category which is extremely new and extremely sort of, you know, uh, niche in the country, which is senior living. Um, so I, I've always sort of found myself, and I don't know if, if it has happened consciously or unconsciously, but I've always sort of found myself in roles where I have kind of been, um, I mean, you know, been in categories that are at a growth stage, uh, right? Uh, that are, that are uh, you know, at, at, at a building stage, I would say. And that kind of has given me a tremendous amount of exposure and opportunity to actually build things from scratch, which is something that I really enjoy doing. Uh, right. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I would say that probably is the differentiating factor. Yeah, that's really right. So, like, I had a question, mind, like, with regards to the Columbia Pacific community, in our country, we had a very negative stigma around old age homes. So how do you think communication is shaping what you think Columbia Pacific communities? And how do you define it? So you're right that, you know, um, I think the perception, the consumer perception on the category is negative. Uh, there is no denying that. In fact, they, they, they've done a lot of studies uh, that pretty much, um, you know, suggest the same thing that it is, it is fairly negative. Uh, and I think as a brand, our primary challenge today, our sort of key problem that we're trying to solve today as a brand is, is to change that perception, is to basically you know, look at paradigm shift because unless we are able to change that very negative perception, we're not going to be able to grow this category. So the way we look at it is that, you know, it should first be a perception change, um, you know, in the consumers, uh, you know, the, the basically a consumer perception change followed by category awareness, followed by brand awareness. So that's the funnel that we're looking at. And obviously because it is really so much about, you know, changing perceptions, changing behavior, uh, it is really, really something that uh, benefits from narratives, right? It benefits from very narrative-driven marketing and communication. And we, uh, you know, attach tremendous importance to content and content marketing. And uh, a lot of our, uh, you know, campaigns that we've done in the last two, two and a half years have all been ultimately about shattering stereotypes around age, around aging, you know, around, uh, you know, the elderly people, uh, and of course, around a solution like this, which is senior living, right? Uh, so if you look at our print ads, for example, if you look at, you know, what we do on social media, if you look at some of our big sort of brand campaigns that we've done over the last two, two and a half years, which have gone on to win many, many awards, 
uh, they have all been fundamentally uh, sort of centered around what we call positive aging, which is a philosophy that we believe in and which is basically the brand's core philosophy and which is to kind of, um, you know, um, uh, look at aging as, as something to embrace, which is to basically uh, look at age, age as just a number and, and to look at aging as, as something that is fairly empowering and to ensure that seniors are, you know, uh, physically fitter, um, emotionally more, more kind of centered, uh, you know, socially more active uh, as they grow older, right? Um, so um, yes, um, I think communication plays a very, very important role. And I don't think this is something that is going to be possible without uh, crafting very, very compelling narratives. Hmm. So clearly, like in the today's world, we have seen how the leadership across the world is shifting. So being like at the heading of the marketing department at India's largest community living, how do you think the industry is changing its perspective for women today? And how do you think it was when you like started with your career? When you say industry, are you, spe are you specifically talking about uh, a particular industry or are you talking about, you know, no, women at work? Yeah. You have worked around different industries, like in general. How do you think like for women it has changed? Well, I think that uh, I don't know if, if it has, uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I've been around for about 15 years now, and I don't know if things have sort of drastically changed. Um, you know, I mean, we're still talking about pay parity, we're still talking about, you know, sexual harassment mm -hmm. at workplace that don't get reported, for example, we're still talking about you know, 4%, a mere 4% of Indian CEOs being women. We're st still talking about leadership teams being fairly, uh, mostly, you know, male-centric and, uh, you know, very few women in leadership uh, roles. Uh, so under-representation of women there, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I don't know if there has been a, 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 you know, tremendously drastic change there. But yes, uh, things have changed. There is no denying it. I think there is today, there is, um, you know, there is a conversation or a dialogue uh, uh, across the board on uh, diversity and inclusion. And obviously women are a big part of that. And, you know, there is and a lot of companies today are making serious effort to hire more women. A lot of companies are making, especially new, new age startups. Mm -hmm. I know that for a fact. They're making serious attempts at hiring more women because they want to change that ratio. And I think, you know, these are commendable things, right? Right. You're right. Efforts are being made. They're still in progress. Uh, but one also has to remember that, you know, women at work and women at workplaces need to change. One is to say that I'm going to, as at a company level, you know, do a massive, for example, women hiring drive, right? A lot of IT companies do that. I know that because, I mean, yeah. you know, I keep hearing about stories. But the other is to say that when you get more women into the system, are you giving them the kind of environment that is conducive for their growth uh, and for them to flourish, right? Um, you know, I think that is, that is the other piece of the puzzle. Um, so if you are going to look at women 
differently to the way that you look at men. For example, uh, even today, if a woman is assertive, if a woman speaks her mind, if a woman has the uh, the courage to call her spade a spade, uh, you know, is forthright in a boardroom or wherever else, she will be looked at as she will be given certain labels. She will be perhaps called bossy or she would be called dominating and things like that. The same behavioral attributes are actually admired in a man, right? And it is a reality yeah. even today. Uh, maybe it, it is not a reality in, in, in a lot of organizations, but in certain organizations, it continues to be a reality. So the point is that I think this needs to change. The attitude towards women and women in leadership roles women outside of leadership roles, women at work in general needs to change. Uh, we need to be able to provide them, uh, like I said, an environment that is, you know, geared to, to help them grow, right? To be geared to help them grow, to flourish, to, to basically, you know, fly. Um, and if you're not doing that, then we're only actually solving one part of the problem. We're not solving the whole problem. And one part of the problem is obviously the diversity problem that we're kind of solving by kind of hiring more women and things like that, uh, right? So, I mean, that's my take on it. Um, so I would say that, yes, things have changed. Um, and more or less, I think there's there's been a lot of positive change in the last decade and a half that I've been uh, working. Uh, but I think we still do have a long way to go. Yeah, that's true. So like, what do you think what could be done to like improve this culture and inclusivity for women at workplace? Right. So, you know, uh, I think the first thing that I want to talk about is inclusivity itself and what do we understand by diversity and inclusion? Um, and, you know, to my mind, uh, diversity and inclusion is not just about gender diversity. That is just one part of diversity and inclusion. Um, diversity is about all kinds of diversity. Uh, for example, in your organization, do you have enough um, neurodiverse people, right? Are you, are you consciously making an attempt to hire more people with neurodiversity, mental illnesses, right? Because they're bringing to your organization a very different point of view, a very different perspective, a very different context that you perhaps need and your business needs. But are you making an, making a you know, a conscious uh, sort of effort to hire more of uh, them. Are you making an effort to hire people from LGBTIQ communities, right? That's diversity too. They're hugely underrepresented. Um, you know, so there are different kinds of diversities. And, you know, I feel like, unfortunately, I think the diversity conversation in our country um, has sort of uh, mostly centered around women, which is one part of the problem, of course. And I mean, I'm all for uh, more women to be recruited, etc. But I think diversity needs to be looked at holistically, right? Um, the second thing is that, you know, uh, what do we do to solve this? I mean, the answer is pretty simple. Um, you know, I read the read this quote just about two to three days back. I think on Women's Day there was this quote that was doing the rounds on the net. You know, and you know, it said that we're all about empowering women and we're talking so much about empowering women, but what are we doing to, to, you know, help men deal with these empowered women, right? Uh, I think, I, th I think, I think that's something that we need to talk about as well, you know, um, 
because men need to be a part of this conversation you know this is not a conversation just about women by to be had by women men need to be a part of this conversation because it's very much about them as well um and and so it is about uh you know um it, it is about an egalitarian sort of you know um a culture that you that you kind of breed uh where you know uh what's fair for the man is fair for the woman and i mean we are ideally looking at you know at at a tomorrow where we don't have to discuss pay gap right you don't have to ask a woman at at the interview stage whether she's planning to have a baby i mean why are you why are these questions asked uh, to women today, even today you know you don't you don't ask these questions to a man when you're interviewing him for a role do you ask him are you are you planning to have a child in the next one year you don't how so how is this a fair question for a woman why why do we have this assumption to begin with um that you know why is this a, like a default assumption that you know a, a woman who's going to get into um i mean you know who's going to kind of bring up a family etc uh, will not be able to uh, also uh, you know contribute meaningfully at work right so so i think these are very deep rooted kind of perceptions right and it is it, it, it's it's uh, you know uh, it, it's a lot of social conditioning right and i don't see this kind of you know um changing overnight because that's not going to happen so i think there needs to be um you know uh sort of how should i say this i mean it it really needs to be at that level of kind of you know having conversations and trying to change perceptions so even here it is really actually about trying to change perceptions and uh, the the only way we'll be able to change perceptions if we have more and more women um at leadership roles you know making policy changes for example having these kind of conversations facilitating these conversations but also ma- making sure that men are a part of these conversations yeah that's true i think everyone should be included in such conversations as there won't be any change coming anytime soon so coming to the mental illness i feel we spend more than half of our lives at the workplace I personally work about 12 to 12 hours a day and sleep around 6 to 8 hours. So with all of us spending so much time at work, mental health is not just a celebrated cause but an essential thing to live and grow physically. I would love to know your insights on mental health both at workplace and at home and how inclusion equality can be found at work to make such positive changes. I didn't get the last part of the question. Uh, what what was the last part of the question? So, how do you think including, like, what are your insights on mental health? Both at like, how could we like implement that on both workplace and at home? And how inclusion equality can be spanned across to make such positive changes? right vanita i'm glad you asked me this question because uh, mental health is something which is you know it's a uh, it's a topic that uh, very is is very close to my heart it's something that uh, you know i um, actively work towards uh, i do a lot of pro bono work around uh, mental health uh, and that is because 
Uh, I have been, uh, you know, uh, mentally ill for over half my life. I got uh, diagnosed with clinical anxiety and depression when I was 13 years old. And I've lived with uh, this disease ever since. And uh, um, obviously it is, it is, you know, impacted me as a person in my life uh, tremendously. And, uh, and therefore, you know, I not only am I, uh, you know, am I a mental health advocate uh, in that, that I speak at various uh, platforms to raise awareness around mental illness. Uh, and what it is like to live with a mental illness and and actually be be working um you know but but also to to try and see what i could do to destigmatize conversations around mental illness in this country and try and see how i can give back to the community give back to uh, you know help out people that are that are struggling today right uh, mental illness is um you know uh, is a, is a topic that is um, you know, for a, for a very long time, did not get its due. Um, it is only very recently, I would say in the last three to four years, that there has been awareness around it. Uh, you know, I would say primarily after Deepika Padukone came out and spoke about her struggles with depression, uh, that's really when the spotlight shifted and, you know, um, there was wide, you know, widespread awareness and people uh, started having conversations around it. Prior to that, I would say that, you know, it was very much something that, uh, was, um, uh, you know, plagued by a tremendous amount of uh, stigma, uh, misconceptions, all kinds of, you know, uh, things. Um, and, and, and one has to realize that uh, someone with mental illness to be at work and to function at a certain level of productivity and to continue being extremely productive is a massively challenging exercise, yeah? And if you're not going to be aware as an employer, as a manager, as somebody, you know, in the leadership team, as a, a, a people officer, as somebody who's making policies in the company, that people with mental illness um, come to work, contribute to work, but actually live with this massive challenge, then you are actually not helping them at all, right? Uh, there are millions of people across the world living with mental illness, one form or at least one form of million, uh, mental illness or the other. And a large part of them uh, choose not to talk about it. And the reason why they choose not to talk about it, particularly at work, is because of the fear of being stigmatized because of the fear of being labeled at work, because of the fear of being judged at work, because of the fear of their performance being seen through a certain lens, right? And so on and so forth. So they continue to live a very, um, I would say, um, you know, kind of strange existence where they go to work, they, they struggle every day, they're barely able to cope uh, and they come home and they kind of break down every day, right? Um, what I have noticed in, in the last, you know, 14 odd years that I've, I've been working is that awareness around mental illness and what it means to be mentally ill, right, is, uh, I would say zilch, it's zero, right? Um, there is no awareness, uh, uh, you know, leadership teams in very large organizations I have found have zero awareness around it, nor do they particularly care. 
um, they do not know what to say, how to say uh, uh, things to somebody who's suffering from a mental illness. Um, and uh, they have absolutely no idea how to deal with somebody like that, right? And that is because they have not been trained. That is because awareness on the whole is very low. And that is because nobody has really sat down and thought about what, what do we do with this uh, problem? And, and that's fundamentally because there is a tremendous amount of hesitation and discomfort around talking about mental illness, which I have found very strange, you know, uh, because mental illness is just like any other physical illness. You know, just the way you have a bad tummy, if you've eaten something terrible or whatever, you can have uh, a disease of the mind. You know, it is about certain chemicals in your brain not getting secreted the way they should be. Right? It, it, it's not yeah. something to stigmatize. You're not helping the problem at all by doing it. And I feel that organizations that are extremely high pressure, and I don't want to name these organizations, but we all know that, you know, there do exist a lot of organizations that are, uh, you know, they're almost like pressure cooker. Uh, and I have been a part of some of those organizations are particularly punishing for people with mental illness. You know, because not only are, uh, you know, are they, are they sort of uh, breeding very toxic work environments, which only make your illness get worse, but they're also not doing anything to support you, right? Um, we have to understand that somebody with, with mental illness is actually fighting two challenges. It's a, it's a dual challenge. It is a battle with your own mind that you're constantly fighting. Constantly, when I say constantly, I mean that, you know, it's, it's literally 24-7. Um, and it is also a battle with the external world who refuses to acknowledge that this is indeed an illness, that this is indeed a real illness. And I think that this needs to change and this will again change like every other change that you need to bring into a system. It will again change fundamentally with conversations. It cannot happen in any other way. It needs to be uh, with the help of you know, large scale conversations that you have at various platforms and fora where you first attempt to normalize conversations around mental illness. You know, I actively approach corporate houses to, to kind of talk about the importance of this uh, because India is headed towards a mental illness crisis and experts have said this, uh, that, you know, mental illness is actually going to be the next pandemic. And I mean, you know, uh, it's bound to happen with the kind of lives that we lead and the kind of absolutely, you know, uh, frantic, insane lives that we lead. Uh, you know, it, it's bound to happen. Uh, but unless uh, we have conversations, we, we, unless we normalize conversations and around mental illness, unless we create platforms within organizations where people with mental illness are able to come out in the open and talk about the struggles that they're going through on a daily basis and what really goes on in their minds, right? And why do they behave the way they do? Uh, why do they, for example, look at things in a completely different manner than somebody that does not have the illness? We're not going to be able to raise awareness around it. And we will, we will continue to, to function the way we are, uh, which I think is the long-term, in the long-term, I think is, a, um, is, is just not a good thing. I mean, it's a, it's a dangerous way of, of, of sort of uh, functioning. Yeah. So, like, I also believe that we should have a society where 
like which understand what mental illness actually is and we should make people comfortable enough so they don't fear away from talking about it so do you feel a particular sector of our society because of the social dynamics or the workplace culture are more prone to the mental illness or is it the same for everyone are more prone to mental illness yeah well i don't know if there is data available on this and i don't like to comment on anything which is not data data backed um, but i mean obviously when you talk about particular segments of society i mean the marginalized uh, sections of society that have uh, very little available resources to them and they actually fight for the basics every day are obviously on a day to day basis uh, under tremendous uh, you know pressure and the, and the, and, the, and their struggles are survival struggles right i mean they just need to they struggle to just survive a lot of things that you and i in 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 the privileged society take for granted uh, they do not have access to that and that can put uh, additional um, you know sort of mental pressure on 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 somebody having said that you know i i do want to make something very clear because this is something that is largely misunderstood right and illness has nothing to do with privilege all right um, you know you can be a privileged person right you can have all the resources that you need you can have access to a lot of wealth a lot of facilities a lot of privilege um you can even be very famous like we've seen in the case of deepika and you can still be mentally ill you can still go through depression and anxiety because it's essentially something that is you know well it is it is it is uh, to to a large extent you know biological right so uh, privilege should not be uh, or or the lack of privilege should not be confused with uh, you know with 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 having an illness um you know and uh, while yes people that are already under a tremendous amount of pressure uh will will be prone to it for sure because you know it, it i mean it, it is it is a pressure on your mind which which will then deteriorate your, your mental health but it is not true that uh you know people of a certain people of a certain societal strata will will kind of um, be more mentally ill than the rest it doesn't really work that way at all it can affect anybody at any any stage in their lives at any phase in their lives uh, it does not discriminate uh, you know uh, against gender mental illness does not know gender it does not know caste it does not know color it does not know race it does not know religion it can happen to anyone and that is why there is a need to normalize conversations around it because today it could be me but tomorrow it could very well be you you know and uh, unless we talk about it unless we try to understand what it is really like to actually live with it um we are not even going to be able to identify it as a problem and that is the problem so like we discussed how like society should include and how what should be the changes in the culture of the organization so telling what do you think like what would you suggest me on a personal level to me or any other individual how should we take care of our mental health personally so first of all you know like a lot of uh, you know sort of books and articles and you know uh, 
things that you kind of just read um, will tell you that do more of uh, what you enjoy. Uh, this is something that I really do believe in. If you do have the, the, the time, uh, and I know time is, uh, I think, uh, the most scarce commodity today in our lives. But uh, the idea is to actually do more of what you really enjoy. Uh, it could be reading, which calms you. Like, I mean, for me, it's reading because it really helps me calm down. It's, uh, it's sketching. You know, it's um, probably watching something interesting. Um, so it, it's just the small things, you know, and they, none of these actually cost you a lot of money, right? But it, it's just the small things. But these are things that bring me real joy. Um, I actually find it very exhausting to, you know, go to parties and socialize and things like that. So I don't like to do that. But but for somebody else, that could very well be a source of, uh, you know, joy. So the idea is to identify sources of happiness and to do more of that and almost make it a part of your habit so that you're finding time every day, even if it is just half an hour, but you're finding time every day to do that. Because at the end of a very, very, you know, hectic, crazy day, and we all sort of, you know, lead very hectic lives, uh, you want to find that one little bright spot every day that's that's your reason to kind of keep going right that's your that's basically that oxygen that you need it's 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 what keeps you alive so i think that's one thing that's very very important the second is and it's been medically proven my doctors have always advised me and i have kind of stuck to that advice um uh you know for many many years now uh, that you need to find time to exercise. Uh, exercise does help. Uh, you know, if you're mentally ill already like me, then you definitely have to exercise because it's like it's like medicine. You need to. It's the way you would pop, pop a pill. Similarly, you would have to exercise uh, because it it releases happier hormones. Uh, you know, serotonin in your in your brain. Uh, and even if, it, if the feeling is just momentary, even if that high from exercise is just momentary and it is just for that one hour or whatever, but it's, 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 it's healthy and you need to kind of do that. The third I would say is try and kind of, um, you know, sort of cut yourself out of networks or people that um, just are uh, a source of a lot of toxicity in your life, right? And we do... All of us have those those kinds of people that we know. Um, you know, there, there could be people like that at work, which would be a little difficult to kind of, you know, um, avoid. But basically try and avoid people that um, act as triggers, you know. Try and avoid people like that. Try and avoid situations like that that act as triggers. And I think when you live with uh, mental illness, what happens over a period of time if you've lived with it for as long as I have, which is over 20 years, what happens over a period of time is that you don't necessarily um, feel better in terms of, you know, your disease does not actually get that much better, at least it didn't get for me. But what does happen is that you are able to identify triggers um, that cause you to feel uh, worse. Um, and, and over a period of time, you're able to eliminate those triggers from your, from your life. Um, so, for example, a trigger could be anything. It could be a it could be a place. You know, it could be a smell. It could be all kinds of things. And sometimes it's even people. They may say things that uh, are not helping you at all. They, they may they may bring back memories that are not helpful, right? And the idea is to actually distance yourself from anything or anyone that is a trigger. And I do urge people to be quite selfish about it, right? Um, the, the idea is to snap out of it and say that no, I'm sorry, but you know. 
I'm not interested or whatever. I mean, uh, do not let those triggers come into your life at all. Um, it's not easy, um, but it's something that one must strive to do. Uh, and I think finally, I would I would sort of say that you know, um, sometimes uh, I have found that you know doing random acts of kindness and there's a lot of lot of conversation on random acts of kindness actually bring you uh, a lot of happiness, right? Um, you know because ultimately I feel that we as human beings sort of exist for other people, right? We exist to also um, you know give back to society to do something for a fellow human being. And uh, we can get very caught up in our lives, in our very busy kind of lives that we lead, um, and not able and not be able to do this on a regular basis. But I think even if you are able to do something meaningful for somebody, uh, maybe once in six months, right? Um, I, I think it does. It does kind of bring you happiness. Um, you know, uh, for example, I have decided to. Um, help out people with mental illness to talk talk about my journey in ment with mental illness to give back, uh, you know, to do a lot of pro bono work around this because this is something that is a, you know, um, that that does drive me quite a bit and I feel like it's my uh, it's my um, uh, sort of purpose in life, you know. Um, so I think finding that purpose, right, finding that reason to kind of stay alive and reason to exist. Um, and kind of trying to, um, you know, uh, in, in some ways give back, I think uh, does help. Yeah. No, that's true. We all should like do as much as we can from our ends. So, clearly, there were a lot of discussion around balance, culture, and everything. So, what is the perspective from, like, what is your perspective on balance? Like I feel it's just centering to all of this. And what is the balance you think people talk about all the time and how it should be looked upon? Uh, do you mean, when you say balance, do you mean work-life balance? Yeah, work-life balance. You mean specifically work-life balance? Work-life, mental peace, other relationships you have. Right, right. Like in life as a whole. No, I, I don't know if I have a formula, you know. I, I don't think most of us have a formula that, uh, uh, or I don't think we have cracked this one, you know. Um, I feel that at least my take on work-life balance is this, that, you know, um, you need to be 100% pres present in whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's work or life, right? Um, I mean, if you are out, uh, you know, watching a film, now, of course, we can't can go to the theaters anymore, but when we were, and if you're going to be constantly thinking about deadlines and, you know, uh, a campaign that needs to go live and, you know, sort of have conversations on WhatsApp with your team, uh, while you're actually watching a film, um, then you're neither are you doing justice to the film, nor are you actually kind of, you know, able to work well like that. So I think, you know, ultimately, everything does boil down to time management, you know, uh, and I keep saying this, um, uh, because I do believe this a lot, I think everything does finally boil down to how well you're able to manage the 24 hours that you have been given. Uh, and obviously, it's super challenging, because 
Um, there's just a lot that needs to be accomplished in the 24 hours. And we are also, as human beings, we are quite greedy. So we do want everything. We want to work really hard and achieve all our targets and you know be extremely productive at work. But at the same time, we also do want that little me time for ourselves. And I think I will at least say this for myself that that me time and it could even be half an hour on a on a weekday or one hour on a weekday is super super important i think it's it's important for people to kind of make an effort to find that me time because that's the time when you are kind of reclaiming sanity that's the time when you're you know just rejuvenating and um you know uh, just kind of reviving right um and it's it's very important to uh, sort of uh, you know find that um, I think, uh, you know, when, when you talk about, you know, work-life balance, um, a lot of it has got to do with um, your kind of, you know, individual goals as well, right? Um, I mean, so for example, uh, you know, um, my goal could be, and this is perhaps a random example, uh, my goal could be that, you know, um, I want to accomplish 12 things on my list today, right? And I, all 12 things I, I, I want to sort of, you know, pick off from, like, from my list, uh, uh, you know, uh, before I end the day. Uh, and, and therefore put myself under tremendous amount of stress because obviously I'm not being able to do that. Um, as opposed to if I were to be able to sit down and rationally tell myself that, you know, I need to uh, prioritize what is super critical, what is not that critical, and what is good to be done today, but can actually wait and can happen even next week. And I don't need to kind of kill myself to do that. Then we automatically sort of, you know, ease a lot of pressure. I know that I am actually quite bad at doing this myself, right? Um, so I should ideally not be preaching. But the reason I'm preaching this is because uh, a lot of my uh, mentors and my bosses have actually told me uh, the importance of prioritizing. And I wish that uh, someday I get better at this and someday I get, bit, get to a point where I'm able to really prioritize and kind of think rationally about what is it that is that needs to happen right away um, and what can wait and, and, and be able to kind of strike that balance. Uh, today, I don't think I do a good job of it, I must admit. But someday, I, I, I hope to get to a point where I'm able to kind of, draw, kind of you know, um, strike that balance. And, and you know, finally, what, what I want to say about work-life balance is that, you know, um, ultimately, you need to ask yourself why you're working, right? You're working uh, for sustenance, of course. Uh, you're working because, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, you have to kind of, uh, look after yourselves, pay the bills, et cetera, et cetera, um, you know, fulfill responsibilities. But if your work has reached a point where you're not able to do the things that bring you real joy and the reasons for which you're actually earning that money, then I think it's perhaps, uh, you know, important to relook at the way you're doing things. And it's important to ask those hard questions. And the hard question here is, why am I earning, you know, why am I, why am I really working, right? Um, so I think, I think, you know, that's really what it is. We are uh, today, um, you know, we've, we've got, sort of brought this upon ourselves. We are the ones to be blamed uh, because we as a culture and we as a generation take tremendous pride in being continuously busy, right? We, uh, we, we sort of, uh, you know, we've created this culture where 
know, you need to kind of be busy 24-7 and you need to uh, sort of, you know, lead lives where um, you're constantly on a treadmill and that is seen as a badge of honor, right? And um, it, it's a culture that we have created. You, me, all of us, we have created. Um, and I think it's, it's therefore the responsibility is on us to actually try and mend this culture a little bit and break away from it. Because in the long run, I, I do believe that it is not sustainable. And I do believe that it is not a healthy thing for either the individual or the organization. Because I think if you look at the way we work today, we almost are quite robotic. You know, we kind of get to work, we kind of get on with our work. We sort of do our 12, 14 hours a day of the same sort of execution-led work. And we're not really taking off enough time to step back to, to kind of, you know, sit, relax, to pause, to reflect on things that we've actually done and to, to kind of, you know, get a perspective on things and to ask ourselves why we're doing what we're doing. And that's actually in the long run quite harmful for businesses as well. Because if you're not going to be doing that, you're not going to be able to innovate, you're not going to be able to think of big ticket things, you're not going to be able to, you know, look at the larger picture, think about where you want to go 10 years from now, et cetera, uh, because we're all so obsessively sort of centered around our kind of, you know, quarterly goals, right? I mean, it's all about what do you need to achieve this quarter? Nobody is thinking beyond a quarter and it's become a culture everywhere. And I do feel that we are to be blamed and it's, it's for us to actually be able to mend that and try and bring in some semblance of, uh, I think, you know, logic, reasoning, uh, sanity into this um, and, and really ask ourselves, A, why do we go to work, like I said earlier, and B, why do we do what we do, you know? Uh, so uh, I would say that's, that's, that's my take on it. So the, our podcast is centric and listened by people who are entrepreneurs, professionals, and aspiring young generations. So what would be your advice for our audience, which is young, goal-oriented and aspiring? How should they start with their career? What would be the piece of advice you would like to offer to them? To, to young people that are starting out in their careers. Yeah. Is that the question? Yeah. Well, uh... I think that you know today's younger uh, the, the young generation well specifically i think the gen z uh, they're way smarter uh, than uh, than what we were 15 years back when we were starting out uh, i think they um, they know a lot they invent a lot uh, they um, uh, you know i think i think um, they, 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 they sort of believe in the power of ideas, right? And uh, they're not afraid to, you know, challenge status quo, right? So they bring in a very sort of, you know, um, uh, you know, interesting freshness to, to, to anything, to a conversation, to, uh, to businesses, to, to uh, everything else. Um, I think the, the, the advice is that, uh, I don't know if it's advice really, because who am I to give them advice? But um, I think the only thing that I would say is that, you know, it would just break the bad news to them, which is that there is really no, no substitute to hard work. Um, there can never be. Um, and, uh, you know, 
you know, there, there's no shortcut, unfortunately. I mean, it, it is really about uh, working really, really hard, putting in those hours, uh, going through the grind, um, you know, showing tremendous amount of resilience, uh, being persistent, uh, being, uh, you know, uh, extremely sincere and uh, trying to do the best that you can every single day. And when I say every single day, I really do mean it, you know, because it is also really about consistency more than anything else. Um, and uh, I wish there was a shortcut and I wish I could say that, you know, you can actually wing it and things like that, but you can't because, uh, you know, uh, by not working hard, uh, I mean, uh, you would be the one, um, that would sort of pay for it uh, eventually. So, so there is no substitute for, for hard work. Um, yes, I mean, sure, there is there is a need to be a smart worker as well from time to time. But but you know, ultimately, it is about the old-fashioned kind of hard work that will get you uh, get you to where you actually want to be. The second thing is that you know um, we have to uh, inculcate in uh, amongst uh, you know uh, amongst the newer generation as well as all generations, this sort of culture of continuous learning, you know, because uh, uh, that's the only thing that will actually keep you alive. And that's the only thing that will actually take you far and wide. Uh, it is really about continuous learning. Our learning does not stop at all. It doesn't stop at college. It doesn't stop at university. It doesn't stop at your first job. In fact, those are just the starting points. You know, it is a lifelong process. And I think that if you, um, if you get to a point and if you get to a headspace where you're actually enjoying this process, you know, that's the time that, you know, that's when you will actually start falling in love with your work because uh, the idea is to stay, you know, Steve Jobs said it, uh, stay hungry, stay foolish. And it is really about staying hun hungry and learning and, and, and just continuously learning, asking stupid questions, asking tough questions, asking all sorts of questions, uh, but asking questions eventually um, and, and learning. Um, so, so keep working hard, keep learning. Um, and, um, you know, um, yeah, I mean, focus on the small things as much as you would focus on the larger things because they're both very important. It is never one or, or the other. It's it's actually both. It's very much about the small things as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's so true. So, so it was great to have this conversation today. And I honestly have learned a lot from your journey. And we have discussed so many Thank you. I'm glad. Like career choices, mental health. And I must say it has been one of the most insightful conversations around these topics. So thanks a lot on coming on the Legic Show. Looking forward to having more amazing conversations with you. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've, I've really had fun and this was a great conversation. And uh, um, yeah, I mean, thank you so much for having me. And uh, I mean, I hope that, you know, this was helpful. <laughs>